Hello, I'm Jane Daly and this is my podcast for people who know. As an independent thought leader, coach and work-life advocate, I'm curious about people who are accelerating their work and life. And whilst finding their own balance, they have also found time to inspire others to do the same. My interest in Paul Matthews started when Paul and I connected at a conference. And since that point, Paul and I have been in close contact and I've been entirely fascinated by Paul's work and his publishing. Paul, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you today. Great to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. So, Paul, uh, are you excited about getting in the work-life time machine this morning? Um, I, I've not been in a time machine before, so <laughs> for me, I'm, I'm a virgin time machine traveller. <laughs> well, I promise you no harm will come to you. I promise you that is my promise to you. But um, I think we should just step right in, shall we, and see, see, see what it's like. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I love the caution. I love it. So, so, Paul, what is this time machine looking like for you this morning? Um, well, uh, yeah, technological wizardry, but uh, where are we going? Well, we are going to go back to 1989, 32 years uh, we're going to go back. And, Paul, here we are. Let me set the scene in uh, 1989. 89. It was a really interesting year, particularly for technology. In science, Tim Berners-Lee, the great Tim Berners-Lee, created HTML 32 years ago, which was the basis for the World Wide Web. Um, and the computer of the day was the Commodore 128D computer, and it cost $399.99, uh, which was really, really interesting. In the UK, sadly, 96 people were killed following um, a crush at a football match in Sheffield. And the big artist of the day was Phil Collins with uh, two songs, actually, which were running up the charts, Another Day in Paradise and Two Hearts. And a couple of films that were sweeping their way at the time were Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Batman and Lethal Weapon 2. So, Paul, what was you up to in 1989? Well, I wasn't really involved in any of that stuff because <laughs> I was in the middle of Africa. Um, wow. So, uh, and, and you sort of said before we, we started recording to sort of think about your sort of first L&D experiences. Um, and it, it, that's where I went back to in my mind. Uh, what I was doing at the time was I was actually working with a travel company that, uh, you know, I was leading expeditions through different parts of the world. And in 89, I was in Africa. I did that for quite a number of years. But what I noticed was when I started doing that work, I encountered hugely a vast range of new experiences and I learned a lot very fast and I changed, it changed who I was as a person. But I also noticed that uh, once I'd had time to sort of get past my own change, I noticed how people were on these long trips. So these were the kind of long trips that, you know, four months from London to Nairobi, and then you turn the truck around and bring it back again. So it was uh, some, some pretty serious overland expeditioning. And, and people would come on these trips as, as tourists and experience a lot of new things that they had never seen before. And what I started to realize, it was the experiences that was changing them no matter how much they might read from the guidebooks or have learned beforehand, or even talking with people who'd been on the trips prior to them going on one. So very 
it became apparent to me, not so much at the time, but in hindsight, when I started, you know, getting involved with L&D many years later, that it was experiences that developed people rather than necessarily just what they learned or what they knew. So that, that was why my mind went back to 89. And of course, I, I had no idea uh, about Phil Collins or anything because I was in the middle of Africa. I wasn't watching the movies and the, the biggest bit of technology we had at the time is you'd arrive in a, in a city after spending some weeks traveling through the jungle and you'd go to the nearest post office and you'd send a telex back to London HQ saying, it's okay, we're still alive, we managed to get through, you know, it was kind of, and, and that was it, that, that, the telex was kind of the, the primary means of communication, so no mobile phones, no sat phones, no nothing like that, so a very different time to what it is now. It is, Paul, and it, it's, it sounds absolutely fascinating, and you've really transported me back to those times, and I, I do have a vision of you as if you were Indiana Jones. I know I mentioned <laughs> one of those oh, films. I was the inspiration for the movie, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you was, but one of the things that you said there, Paul, um, I really do um, believe in looking at hindsight and just thinking about what some of those things meant to you and why your life took you in a particular course. And one of the things that you said was that it actually changed you as a person. These experiences changed you as a person. Tell me a bit more about that. Um, well, immensely. And I think it was, I hadn't realized how much I'd changed until I looked back on what had gone on. And it's just if you're experiencing something for the first time, you have to make decisions because you've got no habits or default patterns of behavior to fall back on. And what happens when you're in continuously new situations on a regular basis you end up making a hell of a lot more decisions about how to behave than what you would if you were in a familiar environment or context where most of those decisions you have already made and then you operate out of habitual patterns um, and a consistency of what people expect from you and what you expect from yourself. Another way to think about that is I remember on those trips, many people kept journals or diaries as they went through. And what was fascinating is that Every day, most of them that were keeping diaries would be writing furiously in their diaries for sometimes an hour or more a day as they recorded their thoughts and what happened. And uh, I do remember asking some of them, do you keep a diary at home? And some of them said, well, yes. And I said, well, how often do you write in it when you're back at home in Sydney or Los Angeles or London or wherever they happen to live? And they said, oh, uh, once a week, once a fortnight. And you'd hear they were writing for an hour a day. So that gives you an idea of how many new experiences they were undergoing and consequently having to make new decisions about who they were and how they were going to respond to that new experience. And of course, so that's, so it's the experiences that were helping them change their behavior to shift who they were to develop who they were. And it wasn't until they had that experience and then practiced it maybe a few times that they would effectively quote unquote learn. And, and this is me thinking in hindsight, uh, rather than at the time, I wasn't kind of super aware of this because I wasn't an L&D at the time. I was, yep. uh, you know, <laughs> I was an expedition leader in some really remote parts of the world. Um, but, but yeah, so, so that, that was kind of why I went back there when you talked about your first L&D experience. It was, in a way, I was taking those people into experiences that they'd never had before. And as a result, they developed and grew many of them as people. You know, Absolutely. 
Absolutely, Paul. And looking back at that time, what would you tell your younger self? Oh, lighten up. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think I, mean, I used to think that, you know, I, I, you know, I've got to be really good at what I do. I carry the weight of the world on my shoulders and, you know, all of that kind of, and I, I just, you know, lighten up. It's okay to not be okay some of the time, you know, it's... Uh, and that, you know, I, I absolutely get that from you as well. I think in thinking about you and the way that you approach learning and development, Paul, I think for you, you are absolutely evidence-informed and you're very deep with everything you look at. But, but for you, you bring a sort of refreshing perspective on it. And uh, I wonder how much those experiences have allowed you to have that vision today. <clears throat> I, yeah, well, thank you. I, I appreciate your, your comment there. And I'd like to think that's how I approach things. I, I think those trips certainly taught me that we're in a VUCA world, although I hadn't heard of that term back then either, obviously, is that things could change rapidly. You could be driving along in the middle of the jungle or the desert or somewhere, and then suddenly your gearbox breaks down. I mean, your world has just changed dramatically. How, you know, how do you deal with that? Yeah. Um, and, and we're seeing a bit of that now in the world where uh, from one day to the next, there can be such a massive change in terms of how people, businesses, organizations, um, socially and economically need to operate. So I, I guess that kind of uncertainty um, or certainty that there is uncertainty, if you want yes. to be esoteric about it, um, and then having to think, well, actually, that happened. Now what do I do? I've got to deal with that. So there is a certain amount about preparing for the worst, but hoping for the best. Uh, there's a certain amount about saying, well, if this happens, how will, you know, what will we collectively have to do to deal with that? And I think also um, back then I was very aware that, yes, I was the the expedition or group leader, but ultimately if the truck got stuck in the mud, we all had to push. Um, there wasn't, you know, it was going to be a collaborative effort to get out of where we were and doing what we were doing. As I said, once the gearbox did break down in the middle of nowhere, and yes, I was fixing it at two o'clock in the morning, yep. but I had two or three of the group members working with me all night to get it fixed. Um, luckily, we were carrying the right spare parts, but you know, re rebuilding a gearbox in the middle of the desert is not a fun thing to do. Keeping the sand out was one of the biggest yeah. issues. <laughs> Ab absolutely. But those life experiences are very important. And, and I love the way that you're bringing the vision of other people helping you there. But let's move to the present day. We're in 2021. So let's bring this time machine right up to date to the present day in the moment. So, uh, Paul, tell us about what, what you're up to. Rethinking pivoting like most people at the moment. On a day-to-day -day basis, I'm, I'm still enjoying a lot of L&D discussions with, with different people and, and particularly globally because I'm fascinated by what's happening around the world because of the pandemic and how different countries are reacting differently from, from an L&D perspective. And so that's interesting. And then, of course, I've got my software company, which in, is in the online learning software game. So that's always uh, that's a nice place to be right now. So that's going, you know, quite nicely. And yeah, so that's kind of what I'm getting up to. So I'm, I'm far from not being busy. Let's put it that way. Absolutely. And that's really good to hear that. And, and I'm, I'm no surprise that you're, you're incredibly busy. And Paul, I know a fascination of yours um, and something that you are a true expert in is learning transfer. 
So tell us a bit about why that's really important to you. I think uh, you might be surprised to hear I've never actually held an L&D role in my life. Despite many of the people out there, I came into L&D almost by accident, well, 20 plus years ago. Um, But my background prior to that was engineering. And prior to that, uh, you know, a simple farm boy in New Zealand. So there, it's very much a more pragmatic view of the world. If you hit it and that fixes the problem, then that was a good solution. Let's carry on and continue doing what we're doing. And then engineering, of course, a lot more evidence-based in terms of calculating what you might need to the size of beam on a bridge so it doesn't fall down. And I was always staggered when I got into L&D that people were accepting such massively high failure rates for the things they were doing, for the projects they were building and so on. But as an engineer, I'd be killing people on a regular basis if I designed machinery with that level of failure rate. Um, so that's kind of what got me into learning transfer and, and also informal learning and that whole learning outside of the formal part of what goes on. Because most learning transfer happens informally. It's not a formal thing, Absolutely. although you can guide it and, and work with it. Um, but, but that was kind of where the learning transfer comes from is, is if we're doing an L&D project, what's the outcome? What are we trying to get to? And it became very obvious that unless it's a compliance issue, the vast majority of L&D is focused on developing some kind of behavior change in the, in the target audience, whoever that is. And of course, if you are looking at behavior change, then you should work backwards from that primary end in mind. So you should be doing, um, rather than a learning needs analysis, which I think is by and large a waste of time, what you should be doing is a behavioral needs analysis or a BNA and I've, I've actually I looked it up on the web. I don't think anybody's using that. So I'm going to claim that one. And um, <laughs> Absolutely. But you should be doing a behavioral needs analysis and then saying, okay, this is the output or the set of behaviors we want at the other end. How do we get those behaviors? How do we, in effect, quote unquote, deliver those behaviors to people? And from there, you can start thinking, what do we need to do to um, what skills need to be practiced? and how often and over what time period to get people to the point where they can effectively deliver on that behavior set. And then in order to practice those skills, what bits of knowledge might they need in order to go and practice those skills effectively? And if I want to try and give them some knowledge outside of what they need to practice those skills, I should be thinking really carefully as to whether I even need to give them that knowledge. But whenever I do give them knowledge, how do I transfer that into the skills practice and from there into the new behaviors that are then sustained and embedded into the way we do things around here? In other words, it becomes a cultural thing. So that's kind of And again, that's as much in hindsight, because I kind of felt there was something important there. And I wrote the book, but I've been thinking along beyond that. And uh, things get more clear the more you think about them. Well, certainly in my world, they do. Uh, And and so, yeah, so in hindsight, that's kind of where it came from. But I wouldn't have articulated it that way several years ago. And in fact, I look back on some of the things I would recommend. And and I personally did an L&D 15 years ago, and I actually... I shudder in horror at how bad some of them were given my current awareness of, of how things should be done. But, I mean, Paul, I really like what you're saying there is that for you, you know, you're really happy to say that, reevaluate, restate your position and, and move forward because you've learned more, you've experienced more and you've discovered more, haven't you? So um, that, that that's where you're at. And it's only by diving in and not accepting those low rates that you mentioned um 
and saying, well, what's going on here? And is it actually learning? It is it learning that I'm, I'm looking at here, or am I just putting some content out? And if it is, accept that and go. Look, I'm just worrying about content. I'm not going to call it learning. Here you go. Or if you want to really get into learning, let's make sure it is. And you start with that end in mind, and you, as you say, talk about well, what other conditions, the environment, the experiences people need to be able to, to make sure that. That their, their new way of working, their new world feels authentic for them because they've had the opportunity to um, transform and change and do all those things that, that learning has the possibilities to do. I, I, you know, I, I, like you, was fascinated by these very low rates of, um, and even, you know, that people were accepting that that was okay. Um, and, and yeah, that was the most amazing thing was that <laughs> acceptance. And, well, I mean, another way to think about that is if as an external observer, you looked at what learning and development does in an organization, in most organizations, not all, but most, uh, if you look at what it does and you look at what the apparent um, output is or the impact that has on whatever, you would have to conclude as an external observer without any further information that the primary purpose of L&D initiatives was to waste money. Absolutely, Paul. I mean, I think, you know, you're, <laughs> Which is you're, crazy. <laughs> but you're, you're saying as it is, if you were auditing what was going on, and I think that um, I'm very lucky to work with um, an amazing lady called Breed, who I know you've met, and Breed um, has been L&D Professional of the Year, but I was very lucky to work with people, you know, like Breed in previous jobs, who, you know, we were relentless at, you know, continuing to you know, get to a point of seeing that change happen. Now, not everybody around us was bothered about that. Yeah. And sometimes we could be driving ourselves crazy, but we know now that what we did then was so, it was the right thing to do. It was so important that we, you know, we carried on and did it. And it was hard work because the work that we're able to do now, Paul, is so much more valuable because we were able to tip over that line and not do what I call is often a Dunning-Kruger move and say, <laughs> actually, that's great. We were like, no, that, that's not good enough. And I genuinely believe that is because we both came from commercial roles and, and were able to understand how the business operate and, and, and when people are at their best, what are the conditions, the cultures and the things that need to be created to support people to be at their best so that if there was any failures we caught them if there was anything that needed to change we changed together um if there was any difficult conversations we allowed that space to happen and those things are really important and i think they're just not happening in business and organizations in particular because we're we're often saying that's good enough and actually good enough is not going to help us mm. particularly at the moment do you agree oh yes definitely yeah but also, having said that, there's some amazing things being done by the L&D community in the last year. Some absolutely incredible stuff. So Paul, I, I'm not trying to belittle. I'm just saying, no, I, you know. I agree. But I think we need to make sure we're on the, the great side of the fence, Paul, don't we? Rather than the OK side of the fence. So, Paul, on that note, tell us some of the things that you have. You know, you've mentioned some of these great things, because I do believe now is a moment for L&D to pivot, be able to show that value that can be added. Uh, once you open that value pot, it is incredible because it's the pot that keeps giving. It's like Jack and the Beanstalk. You know, once you find those, that, that, that sweet spot, it is incredible to see how rapidly 
uh, a power of people starts to evolve. So tell us about some of those amazing things that you've observed this year or last um, year. Well, I think that's something you just said is, is really important is there's a chance for L&D to pivot that we've not, I think, ever had before in the industry in my time. And given the people I've, you know, the older timers I've talked to from, you know, prior to my time in the industry, I don't. And I think the reason for that is the need to go remote has changed the view of senior management on the idea of face to face. Um, it's no longer seen as an essential. So, so many senior teams just used to say, well, I don't care what you really think, just put them in the bloody classroom and get on with it. You know, it was kind of a, you know, we know that's how it worked and that was their opinion because that was the best they knew. And of course, now that kind of default put them in the classroom can't be done. So it's a bit like Kurt Lewin's model of unfreezing and then changing and then refreezing. We've, we've, L&D right now is unfrozen in terms of the way that it was. So we've got this wonderful opportunity to reshape it into something different while those freezing conditions are no longer applied to it. The danger right now is that we make some changes that are short-term in nature, and then we allow us ourselves to get frozen back into that mm. short-term change situation it becomes longer term and it will be dysfunctional in the longer term. So what a lot of people have done and reacted um, and are doing now as a result of the pandemic, if it's maintained over the longer term, it will become dysfunctional in time. And that's the danger I see is people have to, despite their tiredness, despite the fact they've had enough, they have to keep innovating now and looking further forward so that means there's almost a double layer of strategy they have to be thinking about. One is the short term, which is answering the question, which so many have done so well, and, and many have done very badly, by the way, is what do I have to do now today to help the people in my organization now today do the job they're doing now today in the circumstances they're in right now today? And, and that kind of immediacy was really critical last March as we went into lockdown. It's critical again now with this next lockdown. So we're still in that real short term, what do I have to do right now for my people? But alongside that, we have to be looking ahead six months, 12 months, 18 months saying, where do I want the L&D department to be? What strategy should we be playing with given our current understanding in 18 months time? And then, of course, we're thinking, well, I don't know what's going to happen in 18 months' time, and we don't because of the complete levels of uncertainty around everything that's going on, which means we then have to fall back on scenario planning. And so probably, actually, we should be – any company that's not doing scenario planning, actually, has somebody's dropped the ball badly. So all companies should be doing scenario planning against potential scenarios, and each one of those should be made available to the L&D department – who then need to create a simplistic L&D strategy for each of those potential scenarios. So actually you're going to be working with multiple strategies against those different scenarios until the scenario, in other words, the trigger point for that scenario passes. So, you know, um, that's no longer possible, but it may be there's another two or three different scenarios that spawned as a result, you know, so that's the thing with scenario planning. Um, so I think that's really where L&D needs to be thinking right now is that very short-term piece and then the medium short to, uh, then the, then the medium term piece. Long-term, I wouldn't even worry about it right now, you know. 
it's such good advice, Paul, for you to be getting people to think forward, actually. And that is one of the challenges that you find with L&D. And it's also hard. One of the other pieces of advice that I'd throw into what you were saying for L&D is that sometimes people come to you with, with a need. And although it feels that it's desperate, sometimes you have to realise that you can't do anything about it because the, the opportunity has passed. So you have to let some of that go. And you have to go, right, what I can do is start to think forward and work on the next thing. And often that's hard because there's only so much time, resource, investment that L&D have. And they need to now choose incredibly wisely. For me, if we just continue with some of the things that I see when you're spraying and praying and trying to do everything, that is not a good strategy. And I totally agree with you about scenario planning and just discovering well if we did this what are some of the outcomes if we did that and I think using some evidence not loads of it but enough to make sure that when you are scenario planning that you're looking beyond um, opinion and you're thinking about well what is the evidence because we've tried doing that a few times and that didn't work so to go down and try that again would be crazy unless we absolutely change something mm. so you know for me i would get people to add the evidence in but let's speak let's go crazy in this new um this new year pool um and go forward in the in the uh in the time machine and let's get to 2030 which is less than nine years away now which is not a long time but what do you foresee what are your hopes for 2030? Oh, i think my crystal ball is incredibly <laughs> for that one right now and and yeah as I said, I'm, I'm personally, well, I mean, I'm going to be retired by then. So uh, it's going to be, a, with a bit of luck, it's a beach in, in, you know, either in New Zealand or Fiji or somewhere, who knows. But um, what's L&D going to be doing? I really don't know. I, I don't. I, and I think a lot of people that say, oh, I think they're I, I, I fooling themselves. There's, there's so much potential for change going forward that anybody who is going to pre- predict it's and and of course people do feel safe predicting stuff now because no one's ever going to remember that prediction in nine years time so it's pretty obvious that L&D is on a number of trends which will probably accelerate one is clearly the virtual one another one is getting closer to the business um, certainly in companies that are doing well so those trends are likely to continue quite where they end up I don't know I mean you know so I'm, I'm not finding that an easy question to, <laughs> and, and I kind of, I, I'm much more interested in the practical here and now, personally, these flights of fancy into 10 years in the future. I, for me, the, I don't find it that relevant personally. I'm, I'm much more interested in how can we make a difference now that will take us toward a generally better future, whatever that means for everyone, rather than trying to say, well, in 10 years, we're going to be doing X. Well, how does that affect me now? It doesn't. So I don't care. I get, I may, maybe, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not trying to belittle the question, but it's just not something that really... No, Paul, I think, I think it's a great observation. Um, in order for those things to be different and more impactful in the future, you need to be sowing those seeds today because um, there is a delayed reaction to learning and development. It doesn't happen overnight, um, despite lots of people putting out fake news that it does it there is a delayed reaction it depends on the person their circumstances what they're trying to change but um, embedding real behavioral change um, the latest research that is available on that is at least 66 days not 30 Um, 66 days is a long time and you times that by 
one person, a team, a business. That's a huge amount of time. So our expectations need to have our eye on the future, but planting those seeds today and expecting that those shoots won't start to grow for a little while and being okay with that to not be able to sort of get a report out the week later and go, wow, I've done it. It's amazing. It's all finished. Um, the question is there to get people to really think about if you want that to happen in the future, what do you need to be doing today in order for that to be a reality rather than just sort of going along and expecting it, it to happen. But Paul, let me ask you one question before we leave 2030 and, I, and I'm going to be brave and then hand my precious time machine over to you. Women have been particularly impacted by the pandemic. There were already challenges for gender equality. Um, and I'm asking everybody the same question. Um, what advice would you give uh, you know, women, particularly in industries like ours, service industries, for them to be, um, have more equity when it comes to their career? What advice would you give to women? The short answer is I don't know. Um, hey, I'm not a woman, hopefully. <laughs> and, um, um, you know, pronouns he, him. But uh, I, I think, um, and I've not really coached or worked with, with women. I mean, people like yourself and, and others, yes, I've talked to on a regular basis. But in terms of, of giving advice, I'm, I'm not sure I really can. Um, I think there's a different perspective and I do understand there's a difference and there is a gender differential in L&D. Uh, it's interesting that many sort of more junior people in L&D tend to be women, whereas when you hit the senior ranks, that, that gender um, balance tends to flip in many organisations. Um, and clearly there's something wrong there. Quite what it is and how and why, I don't know. I think it's a bigger issue than L&D in and of itself. It's because the senior people in L&D tend to get hired by the rest of the senior team, which does still have a predominantly male balance. Um, I think it's changing though. There's one company we've started to deal with recently and they've just hired in a new HR director who is, is a you know, 30 something woman. And they've done that with a very specific reason of bringing new blood onto quite an old board. So I think, you know, that's the stated objective of theirs. And they went ahead and hired with that in mind. How thorny she finds the journey is another story. And she's starting in a couple of months. So it's a very new thing. So I think it is definitely changing. But I, it's, well, it's, it's probably the same advice I'd give to anybody looking for, you know, to, to get involved is to just start doing as much as you can, taking action. It's kind of like if I was to tell you this was the luckiest day of your life and you were into fishing, you probably wouldn't sit at home. You'd grab your fishing rod and you'd go fishing, given it was going to be the luckiest day of your life. You're going to catch the big catch. If you sat at home, no matter how lucky you are, you're not going to catch anything. And chances are you'd actually take more than one rod. Because if you're going to be that lucky, you might as well have as many rods in the water as you can. So it's the same thing is, 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 just, is just do lots of different things that will potentially open doors to lead you towards what it is, you know, that you're trying to achieve. And that's kind of general career advice for anybody yeah. rather than women in general. But uh, I, th I think your advice, Paul, is, is absolutely right. And the most important thing that you said there to me is, it's, you know, forget looking at L&D, it's a wider issue, it's a systemic issue and those are the things that need to be tackled. Mm. So some of those wider behaviour change, but I genuinely believe there is a huge role that L&D can play aligned with the business to help 
that equality happen. But I'm going to be really brave now, Paul, and hand over my precious time machine to you. So uh, over <clears> to you. Where are we going and why? All right. Well, I watched you press these buttons and I've got to remember <laughs> which buttons you press. <laughs> This big green one here, yeah, is that right? <laughs> no, abso absolutely, that green one is perfect. Set, that, okay. set the dial on the clock and off we go. Two years' time, and I, I think the reason it's just two years, as I said, 10 years, I'm not that interested because, uh, you know, I don't... So, But two years' time, I'm intensely curious as to what's going on in the world in general with things like, you know, US politics, given the current situation, you know, what's happened there. You know, how have people adapted to the pandemic? Because it ain't going away and it will still be here in two years, albeit rumbling along at a different intensity, but quite what level, we don't know. So I just think it is fascinating for that two years. I think that that's kind of, um, you know, where am I in the world? Uh, you know, I've done some really intriguing things. Will I be able to go and do some of those intriguing things again? You know, I don't know. 2023 Paul what you know I haven't been to that year before in the time machine so it's fascinating but Paul you do so um, many interviews you know you're really generous with your time and with your um, advice and and putting things out into the market to really help people because I know that's important to you tell us something that may surprise people about you Oh, I, I guess something that people are always surprised at is that sort of travel stuff I did. I, I mentioned yeah. that earlier in the thing is I don't talk about it very often. So as a result of that, I've crossed the Sahara three times. I've crossed the Himalayas actually from north to south um, and the Hindu Kush and the Karakoram Ranges eight times up into China and back. So I've done some pretty weird and amazing things and I've Climbed Mount Kilimanjaro twice, quite wide at the second time, fails. I, I still can't realise why. You know, I, so there's a huge number of different things I've gotten up to. So it's kind of like, you know, I disappeared for 10, 15 years and just wandered around the world getting up to all sorts of mischief. And, uh, yeah, people kind of assume you've been in a career more or less your life. But for me, that's never, that wasn't the case. So that's, that's I guess, a thing that often surprises people. Um, and I learned a lot of valuable lessons during that time I can bring back into, you know, everything from I was, you know, working on salmon fishing trawlers off British Columbia to, you know, all sorts of stuff. Working on a cattle ranch in South America. It's just, you know, incredible. Lots of different things. So, so there's that kind of really eclectic background, which is interesting and, you know, pulls things together. Fantastic, Paul. I mean, what an adventure that you're, you're still on. Um, absolutely yeah, yeah. And, and you're right I love just chatting with people about L&D if anybody wants to talk I'm always up for a conversation you certainly are um, you know and and I'm you know fascinated to talk with different people and different and, and and occasionally I get people just contact me on LinkedIn or out of the blue and we have a chat and I enjoy it so if anybody wants to have a chat get in touch absolutely I would absolutely recommend that to people because it's something that we don't do enough of is take that time to talk. And I know that we spark off each other, Paul, when we talk, you know, people have got different experiences, perspectives, and that's what's really important. But I can't thank you enough for giving up your time um, this morning, Paul, to talk to us about what you've been up to. Is there anything else just before I let you go that you'd like to say about learning transfer, which was um, a passion of yours that we've been talking about today? 
I think the biggest thing about learning transfer, I'm coming to realize that in order to get behavior change, you need a workflow solution, not a learning solution. Yep. And by that, I'm, by a workflow, I mean an orchestrated and repeatable pattern of activities that people can do. And so it's a bit like the turn-by-turn -turn instructions on your sat-nav. When you put a destination in, the Google artificial intelligence designs a turn-by-turn -turn set of instructions. And if you follow those, you're going to get to your destination. So from an L&D perspective, if you have your destination, which is your set of new behaviors, what are the turn-by-turn -turn instructions as a designer you have to design so that if someone follows those instructions, they will get to that destination of that change in behavior. And that set of instructions is a workflow. It's a set of activities designed and spread over time to get to that output at the other end, which is that behavior. So that's kind of, kind of a big thing I'm doing a lot more sort of thinking about and working on is that idea of to get behavior change, you have to put in place a workflow solution because a learning solution is not enough. It never was and never will be. Paul, thank you so much. What great advice. And I'm going to let you out of the time machine today. And I do hope you'll come back into the time machine in the future. Oh, yeah. Actually, my legs are a bit wobbly. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Paul, so much. And thank you to everybody that's listening to this episode, uh, which is the People Who Know Work Life podcast series. There's lots more podcasts, articles, research uh, reports and experts to explore on the People Who Know website. Please join us again. Thank you so much.